Well, I've been preaching a series entitled, A Call for Men to be Godly. And in this series, I've been addressing common temptations. And while these messages seek to encourage and exhort men in particular, they are applicable to all of us, to everyone. I've begun this series, A Call for Men to be Godly, with the subject of sexual purity and a call for men to be sexually pure. And my first sermon was on 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. We saw in that passage that we know what the will of God is, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. And then in the second and third sermons, I preached on the danger of sexual immorality. By looking at King David's sin of adultery with Bathsheba in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. And I said that didactic passages are needful. Those passages that instruct us very specifically about sin and temptation and sanctification and holiness. But it's also good to see examples in Scripture. And so we considered the bad example of King David at a particular time in his life in which he fell into sexual immorality. This was an example not to follow, an ungodly example. But this morning we will consider Joseph in Genesis 39. He is an example to follow. Here we see a good and godly example. And this example demonstrates that we can remain pure by the grace and power of Almighty God. So turning your Bibles to Genesis 39. Genesis chapter 39. If King David, a man described as a man after God's own heart, committed such sin then we might ask the question, then how can I remain pure? How can I resist temptation? Is it really possible for the Christian to please God and be pure? Or are we doomed to follow the path of David? Well, men, brothers and sisters in Christ, I want to encourage you that you can remain pure. You are not doomed to sexual immorality. You can obey God. And Joseph is an example of this. I'm going to read the entirety of Genesis chapter 39. Follow along as we have this inspired narrative of these particular events in the life of Joseph. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt... And Potiphar, an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, so he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Now his master saw that the Lord was with him and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight. And became his personal servant. And he made him overseer over his house. 
and all that he owned he put in his charge. It came about that from the time he made him overseer in his house and over all that he owned, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. Thus the Lord's blessing was upon all that he owned in the house and in the field. So he left everything he owned in Joseph's charge. And with him there he did not concern himself with anything except the food which he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. It came about after these events that his master's wife looked with desire at Joseph and she said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in his house, and he has put all that he owns in my charge. There is no one greater in this house than I, and he has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? As she spoke to Joseph day after day, he did not listen to her to lie beside her or be with her. Now it happened one day that he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the household was there, men of the household was there inside. She called him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and went outside. When she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled outside, she called the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought in a Hebrew to make us make to us to make sport of us. He came in to lie with me, and I screamed. When he heard that I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment beside me and fled and went outside. So she left his garment beside her until his master came home. Then she spoke to him with the words, The Hebrew slave whom you brought to us came in to to me to make sport of me. And as I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment beside me and fled outside. Now when his master heard the words of his wife, which she spoke to him, saying, This is what your slave did to me. His anger burned. So Joseph's master took him and put him into the jail, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in the jail. But the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. The chief jailer committed to Joseph's charge all the prisoners who were in the jail, so that wherever Whatever was done there, he was responsible for it. The chief jailer did not supervise anything under Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made to prosper. Joseph did not sin. He did not give in to this temptation. And the key to understanding Joseph's purity is found in verse 9 in the question, how then could I do this great evil and sin against God? Joseph knew that if he committed such an act of lying with his master's wife, that it would be a great evil, that it would be sin. 
He understood that the sin would be against his master, Potiphar, who had put him in charge of all that he owned. But ultimately, Joseph understood that it would be a great evil and sin against God. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? Joseph's question there is very revealing. His question reveals his heart. It reveals his view of sin. It reveals his love for God. And Joseph's question demonstrates that there are godly desires which can be more powerful than ungodly desires, even in the most tempting of circumstances. Let me repeat that. Joseph's question in verse 9 demonstrates that there are godly desires, and I might say wrought by God himself, born by the Holy Spirit, which can be more powerful than ungodly desires, even in the most tempting of circumstances. So men, let us learn from the example of Joseph. Before we look in more detail at Genesis 39, I want to set somewhat of a theological context for the battle that we face and the battle that Joseph himself was facing as we read here. It was the same battle for Joseph that we face. He was a man with a nature like ours in an ungodly culture, among ungodly people in a sinful world. And I want us to see this theological context and understanding. And I think it will then make it even more clear and encourage your hearts that even in such a context, we can remain pure. I need to give you some bad news and then some good news. So let's start with the bad news. The bad news has to do with a certain reality. More specifically, the bad news has to do with the reality that there is a fierce battle that we all face in remaining sexually pure. The reality is that we face a strong temptation, strong temptations from without and from within, externally and internally. Externally, we face temptations from the world and from an adversary, namely the devil. The Bible tells us, in Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world because indeed the world is trying to conform us to its image. And the word conform there in Romans 12, 2 is a word that means to fashion something by using a shaped container. It's the idea of pressing something into a mold so as to shape the thing by the mold. And the world is trying to press us and squeeze us into its sinful mold. And so the Apostle Paul in Romans 12, 2 is saying, do not be squeezed into the mold of the world. The world is pressing and pressing against you. It's trying to squeeze you into its mold. And it does so by way of its teachings. It teaches you things that are false. teaches you false things about man's origins and man's purpose and pursuits. And the world has a so-called wisdom, which really is foolishness. The world has morals that are contrary to the character of God and the moral law of God. The world has sinful 
pleasures and passing pleasures. It has false joys. It has counterfeit peace. And it's trying to squeeze us into that mold. It's pressing and pressing. And the world is characterized by evil. It is called the present evil age in Galatians 1 verse 4. It is wicked. And this world is dominated and driven by sin and everything that is opposed to God. 1 John 2 verse 6 says it's characterized by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. 2 Timothy 3 verses 2 to 4 describes the, the age we live in and those who are in it as lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. This is the world we live in. Hedonism, materialism, secularism, humanism, existentialism, relativism, atheism, and a whole host of other isms characterize and pervade the world we live in. And therefore, therefore we're told, do not love the world nor the things in the world. They're passing away. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. And this world that's trying to squeeze us into its mold and is constantly pressing us is under the influence of an evil one, the devil himself. He is the God of this world. Those who are in it, whether they know it or not, really worship at his feet. 1 John 5 verse 19 puts it this way, we know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of of the evil one. They are under his sway. They're under his influence, his rule. And we constantly face the temptation to be conformed to this world, which is characterized by immorality, impurity, wickedness. And behind it is this evil one, an adversary. And there are those who walk according to the pattern of this world that we once walked in before we were saved. Their lives are dominated and driven by sin and various lusts. But not only that, they're inventors of evil, Romans chapter 1 says, who then want others to follow their pattern. And so they seek to bring you into their way of life, their pattern, their worldliness and ungodliness. And they purpose even to deceive you and drag you into their way of life. Their lives are evil. Their motives are evil. And in many cases, they not only want you to join them in their sin, but they want to profit from you joining in their sin. There's not only the external pressure and temptation from this world and those who walk according to the pattern in it, but again, there's the devil himself. The Apostle Peter wrote, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He is your adversary, 
your enemy, your opponent, your accuser. He's hostile towards you. And Peter says he's your adversary. There's a personal nature to that. He's not simply the enemy of God, but he's the enemy of the people of God. He is the devil. The Greek word behind the word devil, diabolos, means the slanderer. He is the one who is the accuser, and he prowls around like a roaring lion. He's like a lion. He's very strong. A lion has great strength, and he prowls. He's deceptive. He's cunning, and he's active in seeking prey. And what he wants to do is devour God's people. He's vicious. He's cruel. He is a destroyer. This should be a wake-up call. That's why Peter says, be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Be vigilant. Be watchful. Be observant. Martin Luther said this of our common adversary in his hymn, A Mighty Fortress. When he wrote, A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. You and I are not his equal. We are not equal or greater in strength that we might resist him in our own strength. And so this is the bad news. We have a sinful world pressing upon us, seeking to squeeze us into its mold. We have a powerful adversary seeking to devour us and make us fall. And this is just a summary of what we face externally. What makes matters worse is that there are temptations from within. Not just externally, but internally. And so the The bad news, you might say, gets even worse when we consider the internal source of our temptations. We have a sinful fallen nature. We have remaining corruption as believers. We still have what the Bible calls the flesh, our sinful corruption. And it sets its desire against the spirit. There is this raging battle. James 4 Verse 1 puts it this way, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? He's saying the source of it comes from within. James says in chapter 1, verses 14 to 16, But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Be aware of this corrupt nature that is still yours, although you are redeemed by the blood of Christ. And ultimately, the greatest temptation is not external, but internal. Satan can bait the hook. And the world can make it look good. But you and I bite the hook of sin because of our own lust, our own sinfulness. And how easily we are sometimes drawn away. 
So this is the bad news. The bad news is that we face strong temptations from within and from without, internally and externally. But here's the good news. Believers, by God's grace, you've been regenerated. You've been born again. And by the work and power of God in Christ Jesus, you have new and godly desires. Yes, you have remaining corruption. Sin has not been eradicated. But you have the spirit of the living God. And you've been made alive in Christ. Can we achieve sinless perfection in this life? No. But are we still slaves of sin? No. Are we doomed to live in defeat and live in habitual, willful sin? No. Titus 3 verse 3 says that unbelievers, as unbelievers, we were enslaved to sin. It says, for we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But there's an important word in Titus 3 verse 3. And the word is once. You once were foolish. You once were enslaved to sin. And Paul, the apostle, is saying to the church, redeemed believers in Christ, no more are you enslaved. You have remaining corruption, but it's not your master. You have a new master, the Lord Jesus Christ. Once we bowed down to all kinds of lusts, various lusts, but now we bow down to the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul writes in Romans 6 verse 2, How shall we who died to sin still live in it? And he says in Romans 6 verse 6, Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves of sin. Therefore, these wonderful words, that we have the ability not to continue in that enslavement to sin, Romans 6, verses 12 to 14, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so as to obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those, listen, who are alive from the dead. And present your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you. Here's the good news. You are not under law. You're not trying to be justified by a covenant of works. But you're under grace. As strong as our remaining sin is, it is not our master and we are not its slave. Christ has secured that in his redeeming work. We can say no to sin, and we can not let sin reign. As strong as the pull of the world is, Jesus has overcome the world. 
we can resist the world's pull and be transformed by the power and grace of God. We can be transformed by the renewing of our minds with the word of God. Yes, this is an evil age, but Jesus gave himself to rescue us from it. Galatians 1 verse 4 says that he gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age. He died on the cross so that we would no longer live according to the, the pattern of this world. Galatians 6.14 tells us, The world has been crucified to me and I to the world. As strong as the adversary is, you can resist him, not in your own strength. That's why Martin Luther went on to say, Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? We're not the right man on our side. The man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth, his name, from age to age the same. And he must win the battle. So the devil himself is a defeated foe. In the words of scripture, 1 John 3, 7 to 8, little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. If you're a believer, that is a fact in your life. So by God's grace, believer, you can grow in holiness and you can live righteously in an evil age. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and instead to live righteously, sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, in the midst of this evil age. And you know what? We have the Holy Spirit. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world, the Apostle John wrote. So this is the good news. As born again, justified, redeemed, saved believers, we are not doomed to sexual immorality. Now back to Genesis 39. I set the context of the battle we face externally from the world and the devil and internally from our own remaining corruption that we might see that Joseph himself faced the same things. And yet he did not sin. The grace and power of God was operative in his life and Joseph heeded not the lure of the world and the lust of his own flesh, but he heeded and obeyed the instruction of of the grace of God to live righteously in the present age. He did not succumb to such a strong temptation. He did not give in to ungodliness. Having cultivated godly desires and faithfulness to God in his life in every circumstance, when faced with such a powerful temptation, his response was, How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? That's a demonstration that he was no longer a slave of sin. That he had been regenerated and had godly desires and affections. 
So again, Joseph's question demonstrates that there are godly desires which can be more powerful than ungodly desires. Listen, even in the most tempting of circumstances. His circumstances were difficult, to say the least. And yet he overcame it by right thinking and godly desires. Joseph overcame this temptation by the grace and power of God. Look at Joseph's circumstances. Let me give you some observations that are very instructive to us and will encourage us. First, observe that Joseph had gone through painful circumstances up to this point in his life. Genesis 39, verse 1, Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. And Potiphar, an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. This verse takes us back to Genesis chapter 37, to remind us where Joseph was and how he got there. He's in Egypt. You remember in Genesis 37, and in something of the life of Joseph, we won't get into the detail, but he had brothers who were very jealous of him. God had given him a dream, Joseph a dream, that his brothers would bow down to him one day. They were jealous of him. His father loved Joseph more than his brothers, and that was a cause of jealousy. So they, they were jealous of him and even hated him. And so they wanted to kill him, and they plotted to do so. But Reuben devises a plan, and another brother comes up with a plan to spare his life, but yet to make a profit from him. So they sell him into slavery to the Ishmaelites. He's been mistreated by others, even his own family members. And now he finds himself sold by the Ishmaelites to this Egyptian official, the captain of the bodyguard. He had gone through painful circumstances in his life up to this point. Yet Joseph didn't use his circumstances to rationalize and make an excuse to commit such an immoral act. This is very significant. If we get down to where we say, as the proverb says, this is where the rubber meets the road, the reality is is that we can sometimes be more vulnerable to sin and to Satan when we undergo trials, especially when mistreated by others. We can tell ourselves in that circumstance, having gone through such pain and difficulty, from a fallen world and people who have mistreated us, we can say, oh, I deserve this. Don't I deserve a little passing pleasure of sin? I've been through so much. Surely God will understand. And we begin to now in that remaining corruption to believe the lie of the devil himself. Listen, past sins against us by others are never a cause for us to sin against God. Don't let the sin of others be an excuse to fulfill your sinful desires. Whatever the source, Joseph had gone through much difficulty and pain. His brothers hated him. And he could have said, a little pleasure might relieve me of such pain. 
but he didn't let it be an excuse for sin. I mean, think about it. Things did not seem to be going as he thought it would based on the prophetic dreams given to him by God. And there could have been the temptation to doubt God and his goodness. And yet Joseph doesn't blame God. He doesn't forsake God. He doesn't use it as an excuse to imbibe in this this sin. The reality was that even in Joseph's circumstances, God was actually blessing him. His life was full of God's favor and grace and blessing in spite of the fact that his brothers hated him, sold him into slavery, and now he finds himself a slave here in Egypt. So Joseph continued to be faithful even in circumstances he did not understand and when he could not comprehend what God was doing. So we learn from this, don't use your past or current circumstances or trials as an excuse to commit sexual sin. But you don't understand. You don't know what I've been through. You don't understand what my home life is like. And you don't understand my marriage relationship. And you don't understand. Don't allow the sins of others to weaken you. Resolve to be faithful in every circumstance by the grace of God. And so in spite of Joseph's past hurts and circumstances, he did not give in to the temptation. Secondly, notice that Joseph was surrounded by ungodly people in an ungodly culture. In verse 1, where is he? He's in Egypt. This is Egypt. (laughs) An ungodly place. And imagine not only this one particular temptation, but all the temptations he faced in a pagan, godless society, an ungodly culture. The culture he lived in, the nation he lived in, did not esteem holiness and faithfulness in marriage, yet he did not conform to the world. And Joseph was alone there in Egypt. He didn't have the fellowship of God's people. In God's providence... Joseph didn't even have the encouragement of like-minded believers, which is a common means by which God keeps us pure. He was alone in this ungodly culture, and there was anonymity and secrecy. So you just begin to see these are the circumstances in which Joseph was in. Many sins are committed because we think no one will know. Joseph could have committed this sin and no one from Israel, no true believer would have even known. But in spite of Joseph's surroundings in an ungodly world, he did not give in to temptation. And although the text does not speak of the devil, the adversary, we know he's active. And yet Joseph's circumstances... His external temptations were not a cause to give in to the temptation. So he's gone through painful circumstances up to this point in his life. He's surrounded by ungodly people in an ungodly culture. But notice thirdly, that in all this, Joseph was faithful to God and diligent in serving God. Verses 3 and 4. Now his master saw that the Lord was with him and 
how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in, this, in his sight and became his personal servant. And he made him overseer over his house and all that he owned he put in his charge. This is what could be said of Joseph. He was faithful. He was faithful to God. And as a result, he was faithful to man, even ungodly Potiphar, a lost soul. God blessed Joseph, and Joseph was faithful in his circumstances. He wasn't bitter and disobedient. His trials, again, did not deter him from being faithful. And he served God, even in what seemed to be difficult and unfavorable circumstances. This is very important. What we read of Joseph here in these verses, verses 3 and 4, his faithfulness to God in every circumstance preceded his faithfulness when tempted with sexual sin, beginning in verse 7. Joseph didn't just become the kind of man who would resist Potiphar's wife when she pursued him, as we read in the verses of that follow. What we read about Joseph here in verses 3 and 4 and what was true of his life prior to this, the godly man he was, even in his circumstances, is what prepared him to flee this temptation and not sin against God. So what happened prior to the temptation and the godliness he was already cultivating is what prepared him for the temptation. Some sin because they've not been following Christ. They've not been following His commands and pursuing holiness in the whole of their lives. Then the temptation comes and it simply reveals that Christ has not been their treasure. Holiness has not been their pursuit. And faithfulness to God has not characterized their lives. And the temptation just does, as I've spoken of before, it's just like a sponge as you squeeze and what's in it comes out. The temptation just squeezes the heart and it comes out. But Joseph, even in difficult circumstances with much pain in his life, not understanding how in the providence of God he found himself where he was in an ungodly culture, an ungodly society. He's faithful. So that when the temptation comes, lie with me. What comes out of his heart and his life is faithfulness to God. Because that's what characterized his life prior to the temptation. Sometimes what is revealed when the temptation comes is an unregenerate heart, an unsaved soul. But what are revealed in Joseph's life is the fruit of righteousness. What was wrought and what was seen was, no, this is one who indeed is pursuing the things of God. So believers, pursue holiness and faithfulness to God now. Then when the temptation comes, you'll be able to stand and flee. Cultivate godly desires now. All of this in Joseph's life, his faithfulness to God in every circumstance, the forging of godly character, even in difficult circumstances, all of that prepared him for an intense temptation that was about to come. And so we learn from this, if you do not walk with Christ now, 
and in every circumstance, how will you stand when the adversary seeks to sift you like wheat and when the world squeezes even harder? In other words, the godly desires we read of in the words of Joseph in verse 9 did not suddenly spring up when Potiphar's wife pursued him. No, those godly desires were already there and cultivated. Therefore, when the temptation came, godly desires overruled ungodly desires. So are you cultivating godliness now? So Joseph's faithfulness and purity began in verses 1 to 6, and even before, not just beginning in verse 7. So we've observed that he's gone through painful circumstances in his life. He's surrounded by ungodly people in an ungodly culture and world. And yet in all this, he was faithful to God. He was diligent in serving God. He was cultivating godliness. He was glorifying God. But notice, fourthly, Joseph was a gifted and attractive man. God had given him much skill and wisdom in administration and management. We read of that in verse 5. It came about that from the time he made him overseer in his house and over all that he owned, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. Thus the Lord's blessings was upon all that he owned in the, field, in the house and in the field. So he left everything he owned in Joseph's charge, meaning he managed it all. With him, he did not concern himself with anything except the food which he ate. He must not have been a good cook. I don't, we have to do some research as to what that means, but anyway. But what we learn from this is Joseph excelled in overseeing, in administration, and management. And it didn't come from Joseph. Ultimately, it came from God. God had given him the gifts that he possessed, and God blessed his labor. But here's what's important to see. These are very important spiritual principles here. There's no indication that in this blessing from God of any pride in the heart of Joseph, many would have become proud and boastful. I've been mistreated by others, but look, everywhere I go, I rise to the top. Self-centeredness might have begun to take hold. Look at my skills. Look at how I manage things so effectively and how everything I touch prospers. You don't get anything like that from Joseph. He was a smart man. And he used his gifts for God's glory and the good of others. He was an industrious man, a faithful man in every place, in every situation. Even later in the chapter when he lands in jail and, uh, for unjust accusations against his character. Even there his managerial skills come to the fore. He was industrious in every situation. Now you contra- contrast that with what we saw in King David's life at that particular time in 2 Samuel 11. David was not giving himself to his kingly duties when he committed adultery with Bathsheba. Contrasted with that, Joseph was faithful in every responsibility, in every place. He's been sold into slavery, then sold to Potiphar, yet he remains industrious and faithful to God. 
And this is important. We're going to see this when I talk about as men, we're called to be industrious men, making the most of our time and doing what we know the will of God will be. This is foundational for resisting sexual temptation. You say, what does that have to do with sexual temptation? It's a whole life. This isn't like a compartment that you deal with over here. It's a whole life that has to be forged by the word of God, the will of God, under the lordship of Christ. And as we live lives under the lordship of Christ, then when those temptations come, it's it's not in a vacuum. It's a whole life that's being industrious for the glory of God. That's what we see in Joseph's life. Some are tempted in sin because they're not content with God's providence in their lives. They have a spirit of discontentment, dissatisfaction in general, and that makes them susceptible to sexual sins. You don't get that in Joseph's life here. Some are driven by pleasure and passions and feelings rather than the will of God. Not Joseph. Again, very important. Sexual temptation and other sins as well are more common among those who are not giving themselves to the will of God, who are not using their time wisely, and those enslaved to this sin and caught in all kinds of trespasses are usually those whose lives are not very well ordered and well arranged under the lordship of Christ and the word of God in the first place. That's why often my counsel as a pastor in shepherding souls in this is not always just about the temptation to sexual sin, but what does your life look like in general? He doesn't just want you to be faithful in this one area. He wants a whole life lived to his glory. And that's what we see from this man. He was a gifted man, but he wasn't prideful. He was a humble man. And in addition to the gifts and abilities he had that God blessed, verse 6 tells us, now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. He had brains and brawn. He was successful and attractive. He was a man who turned heads, as the saying goes. He was successful at all he put his hands to, and he was attracted to the eyes. Yet again, pride did not rule his life. Why is this so important? Men, listen, why is this so important? Because pride always, without exception, accompanies sexual sins. Always, without exception, pride is there somewhere. But humility always accompanies purity. When you read of what characterizes the world in 1 John 2, we focus on the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes. And we sometimes put in a different category the boastful pride of life. No, the three are related. If I can just get rather specific so you understand the connection I'm making. When someone sins through the sin of pornography, it's not just the pleasure, physical pleasure, that ends up coming from that. It's the boastful pride of life. Men, if I can just be honest with you, when we're tempted with our thoughts to sin, it's because we're pridefully placing ourselves in that person's place 
and we're getting puffed up. We're creating a false reality. The boastful pride of life is powerful. This is why we must cultivate humility. And the boastful pride of life is not separate from the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes. They go together. That's why we have to cultivate humility. You say, I'm tempted to sin. Part of it is your pride and your projecting your pride into your pornography. I, I hope some of this connecting with you men, not just men, but all of us. When you die to your pride, that will be an aid to you against sexual temptation. To, to broaden it, maybe some of you ladies to put it in here, when, it's when there's sexual sins of various kinds, sensuality, let's say, in general. This is where modesty begins to rear its ugly head. Look at me. Immodesty through dress that is revealing. I want people to desire me. Where does that come from? It's not just the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes. It's the boastful pride of life. Now, one of the things while we were away, we saw a lot of that. We saw people who would dress in particular ways so that they would turn heads. It's the boastful pride of life. But see, Joseph was, why does it say he was attractive? Well, of course, because then Potiphar's wife was attracted to him. But here's a gifted man, successful man, and all he put his hands to, he's an attractive man, but he's a humble man. He is not living, and he hasn't been squeezed into the mold. He's not living by the boastful pride of life. He's humble before God. I want to be faithful to God wherever you put me, even if I'm a slave. By the way, clothing is for covering nakedness. Clothing is for glorifying God. It's not for revealing, exposing, and making a fashion statement. It's not for drawing attention to oneself. It's not to be flamboyant to draw attention to yourself, even if you're covered. Clothing exists to cover and we glorify God even with that. When we die to self, we'll dress modestly. So here we see some keys to purity. Not only faithfulness to God, love for God, and zeal for His glory, but also humility. But now the story changes from prosperity and blessing to seduction and temptation. Enter an adulterous woman. Verse 7. Came about after those events that his master's wife looked with desire at Joseph and she said, Lie with me. So notice, fifthly, that the temptation came from a wicked, aggressive, powerful woman who had no regard for purity. Here is a woman who is drawn to Joseph's gifts his success and his looks, and by her own sinful lust. She's bold, she's boisterous, her motives are nothing but sinful. Joseph doesn't let the sinful attraction of Potiphar's wife feed his pride and give him a cause to enter into that temptation. See, here, here's... 
what could have happened. If he wasn't a humble man seeking the glory of God in his life. Here's a powerful woman who desires me. How flattering. But he isn't swept away by pride. No, Joseph is still a faithful man who's loyal to God first and as a result to man secondly. And that's why he says in verse 8, but it says he refused and said to his master's wife. He explains it. Behold, with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house and he has put all that he owns in my charge. He wanted to be faithful. He's not lured by the temptation of the attraction of this woman to him. There's no one greater in his house than I. That, that didn't puff up his pride. That was a cause for humility because he didn't see it as coming from himself but from God. And he has withheld nothing from me except you because you're his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? One commentator said this, Joseph's reasons for refusal were those that another man might have given for yielding. His freedom from supervision and his rapid promotion, which have corrupted other stewards, and his realization that one realm only was barred from him, which others, from Eve onwards, have construed as a frustration were all arguments to him for loyalty. By giving the proposition its right name of wickedness, he made truth his ally, and by relating all to God, he rooted his loyalty to his master deep enough to hold. Notice sixthly, This temptation was persistent. Verse 10 says, As she spoke to Joseph day after day. I mean, this is not just a one-time event and temptation. Now it's day after day. Lie with me, Joseph. And the text doesn't tell us, but I'm sure she said more than just those words. And she's day after day speaking with him, trying to lure him. But he did not listen to her to lie beside her and be with her. This was a temptation that he could not completely flee. He couldn't separate himself from it. So he he might have awakened in the morning and said, God, give me your grace. She's going to press and press again today. It was a persistent temptation. Notice Joseph is young and single. He's somewhere in his mid to late 20s at this point in his life. He didn't have a wife to satisfy his desires in that way. But he didn't give in to the temptation. So day after day after day, She comes to him. What will he do? James Montgomery Boyce said, Up to this point, it had been God first, followed by favor with man. But suddenly it was God or man. And Joseph, like all true men of God, determined to walk with God whatever it might cost him. So it finally gets to this heightened 
situation in verses 11 and 12 where he had to literally flee. Now it happened one day that he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the household was there inside. She called him by his garment saying, lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and literally fled and went outside. Sometimes you have to literally flee. But I want you to also notice and be reminded, Joseph was a man with a nature like ours. With remaining corruption. He had to deal with his own sinful lusts. He had to contend himself with the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life. And yet in all this, Joseph did not sin. But instead, he says, how then could I do this great evil and sin against God? Joseph had moral clarity. Very soon, I've taught on it before, I'm going to preach on it, the Ten Commandments, because we need moral clarity. More than ever, we need moral clarity. Joseph had moral clarity. He is a sensible man in the the scriptural sense of the word. He's not driven by sinful passions. He's not driven by feelings. He's driven by the word of God. And so he understood. He had the moral clarity. To do this thing would be great evil. He knew what it was. And that was part of what aided him to stand. He had moral clarity. He had a right focus. How can I sin against God? Ultimately, the sin would be against God himself. And he loved God. He desired to please God more than he desired to give himself to the passing pleasures of sin. And this is what anchored his soul. Joseph loved his God more than sin. His desire to serve God and remain faithful trumped the external and internal temptations to sin and lie with Potiphar's wife. Do you see? When, this should encourage us. All of this, these circumstances, the, the external temptations, the internal temptations... All of these circumstances in this time in in Joseph's life that if you had never read the text, you might read and say, he's going to fall. How can he remain faithful? This is the power and grace of God. Yes, the world is alluring. Yes, the adversary is strong and crafty. Yes, we have remaining corruption. But greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. God's work in us is powerful. And his grace is not just for the forgiveness of sin, but for the forsaking of sin. Grace justifies But grace also purifies. Oh, we need this moral clarity. 
men, we, we have to see things this way. I fear that even in our own local congregation that sometimes we start excusing sin, the sin of others, our own sin, and the moral clarity is lost and we're forsaking God. Men, you can remain pure. But you must cultivate daily faithfulness to God. You must pursue what is pleasing to the gracious God who has made you his own by the blood of Christ. You must, by the grace of God and because God is at work in you, strive for holiness, pursue holiness. Men, we are not doomed to sexual sin. But by the grace of God, we can be like Joseph. We live in a wicked world, and it's getting more and more wicked, and it's pressing upon us. And sexual temptation is not just looking up at a distance or walking by a particular place. It's, it's right there on your phone and your computer and your television, and it's all around you. And the temptation is great, and the moral standards of our world are changing, and the world's trying to squeeze you into its mold, and the adversary's trying to devour you. But you can, by the grace and power of God, cultivate godliness, and in the most pressing of temptations, flee. But the motivation must be, how can I sin against God? So men, women, boys, girls, by the grace of God, follow the example of Joseph. May it be so to the glory of God. Amen? Let's bow our heads together in prayer. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Father, I pray for the men in this congregation. I pray for the young men in this congregation. Or may we be men who are faithful, who love you, who are pursuing and cultivating godliness by your grace and the power that works within us. May we walk humbly with you. And in the most pressing of environments and ungodly environments, May our love for you and our desire for your glory, Lord, may it suppress our ungodly desires so that we would be men that are sexually pure and holy, even if it cost us. For all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Father, I pray that this would be the case 
not only among the men in this congregation, but the women as well. May these truths that we learn and things that we see in the life of Joseph be cultivated in our lives. We pray to your glory. Amen.